This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking with Laura Stokes about her new research and information guide on 19th century composer Fanny Hensel. While there is more published research on Hensel than any other woman composer of the period, with the possible exception of Clara Schumann, the scholarship on Hensel is marked by shifts in musicological priorities. Typically, musicologists study music before biography. But in Hensel's case, biographical writings came first. As perspectives on women's roles in 19th century Europe have changed, so too has the analysis of Hensel's life and cultural significance. Today, Dr. Stokes will tell us about Hensel's career, the state of Hensel research today, and the ethics of editing a research guide. Welcome, Dr. Stokes. It's so great to to have you today on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this is an experiment for me. I've not tried to introduce or or talk to a writer about um, an information guide before. So I'm excited to sort of dig into not only Fanny Hensel, but also some of the issues that arise when trying to create uh, something like this research guide. But I thought before we sort of talked about the research guide itself, we could start with letting everybody know a little bit about Fanny Hensel, who she is, what kind of music she composes, sort of basic information, because Um, she may be someone that not everybody is familiar with. Sure. So the one-sentence version um, of Fanny Hensel and her life is that Fanny Hensel was one of the most prolific female composers of the 19th century, and she was also an extraordinarily accomplished pianist and the hostess of an important Berlin salon. So she was born in Hamburg in 1805 as Fanny Mendelssohn, the eldest child of Abraham and Leah Mendelssohn, Um, She was therefore a member of the extended Mendelssohn family, which included many other people who were significant in 18th and 19th century German and European culture. Her grandfather was the philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, who was perhaps the central figure in Jewish Enlightenment thought. And in addition, two of her aunts were also culturally significant, Dorothea Schlegel, the romantic novelist, and Sarah Levy, who was a music patron and collector of the works of J.S. Bach. And, of course, Fanny Mendelssohn's younger brother, the composer Felix Mendelssohn, would be born some three and a half years after she was, in 1809. So Fanny Hensel, known at that time as Fanny Mendelssohn, was born into a family situation that put her in the thick of European cultural and artistic life at that time. Now, Fanny's father was a well-to-do banker, and thus she grew up in a very materially comfortable situation. 
And while her mother is perhaps less famous than some of her other relatives, she was also very well educated and musically oriented. And her mother was the original catalyst for her children's musical development. Now, um, in 1811, the Mendelssohn family moved to Berlin, which would become the home base for generations. Uh, This family now included a third child, Rebecca, and in Berlin, a fourth was born, Paul. Fanny's siblings, especially Felix, were her main companions during her childhood. And Fanny and Felix were educated together, including in music and composition. So while their mother gave them their first piano lessons, they both soon were receiving lessons from some of the top educators in Europe, including Carl Friedrich Zelter for composition. Zelter, in turn, was a close friend of the poet Goethe, and so this was yet another connection to a central figure in artistic and cultural life. Felix and Fanny both joined the Berlin Sing Academy, which is a well-known singing society that played a role in preserving J.S. Bach's works. So, in short, Fanny Mendelssohn, she was known when she was born, was born into a very culturally rich environment, and she enjoyed a very solid education, both generally and musically. It's also worth noting that in 1816, Abraham and Leah had all four of their children baptized. So Fanny was raised basically as a Christian, even though she was descended from the most famous of German Jewish philosophers. So Fanny began composing around 1819, so around 14 years old, and focusing on leader and solo piano music. Her compositions, and in total there are over 460 of them, are very heavily weighted toward leader and piano music, for reasons we can come back to. Um, She also did compose in some other genres, including choral songs, cantatas, chamber music, organ music, and a single orchestral piece. Now, the Mendelssohn parents had a salon in their home, and Fanny frequently played the piano in that salon, which gave her some experience with quasi-public performance. But it was made very clear to her that her parents, especially her father, would not consent to her having a public career as a musician. And this, of course, was in contrast to her brother Felix, who was actively being prepared for a public career as a musician. In 1829... Fanny married the painter Wilhelm Hensel, and in contrast to Abraham Mendelssohn, Wilhelm Hensel was overtly supportive of Fanny as a composer and started to encourage her to publish her works, although it took years before that would actually happen, before she would actually decide to start publishing. Uh, Fanny began to hold her own musical salons, which were really more like a concert series than uh, a private meeting of friends. Um, These events that she held were called the Zontagsmusiken, um, Sunday musicals, because they were always held on a Sunday. And over time, these grew into major musical events, attracting as many as 300 people into the Hensel home. Uh, These salons were still sort of private in that they were not advertised, you needed an invitation to go, but they were public in scope and they were certainly very well known in the music community. During the years following her marriage and the birth of their one child, Sebastian, um, Hensel also worked on composing in longer forms, including cantatas and chamber music. She also suffered a miscarriage and a stillbirth during these years, as well as the death of her father, and all of these things did take their toll physically and emotionally. Um, But she always returned to her musical activities after a period of some recovery. In 1839 to 1840, the Hensel family made a journey to Italy 
where they spent a particularly long time, some six months in Rome. And Fanny made many friends while she was in Rome, um, especially with the members of the French Academy. And this was a very positive experience for her. She was away from the immediate pressures of her extended family. And the members of the French Academy really looked up to her as an authority on music. And they created an environment that stimulated her to creative work. So she composed a lot and she generally enjoyed her life. Her time in Rome was really a high point in her existence. So back in Berlin, um, after returning from their trip from Italy, in spite of intensely missing that life that she had had in Italy, um, Hensel became very productive. Um, and in 1841, she wrote what is perhaps her most famous work, the piano cycle Das Jahr, or The Year. Um, there's a great deal of debate in the literature about the significance of Das Jahr. Some say that it's a diary of her time in Italy, um, others say that it's a more general reflection on the passing of time and the seasons of life, so to speak. Um, there's one movement in it for each month of the year, along with a po postlude. And there are references to other music, including box chorales, which are interwoven throughout this cycle. In 1846, after a great deal of internal debate and a great deal of urging from her husband, Hensel began publishing her works. She published seven opus numbers before she died, and that included songs, solo piano works, and choral works. But on May 14th, 1847, she had a stroke during a rehearsal of the Sonntagsmusiken, and she died that night. She was 41 years old. After her death, her family had an additional four of her collections or works published, including her piano trio for a total of 11 opus numbers. These 11 opuses are, I mean, they're wonderful works, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg of what Fanny Hensel wrote. And the real tragedy of Hensel, of course, is that she died so young, just as she was really starting to grow into a new role as more of a public composer. And so as a Hensel scholar, it's hard not to think with some longing about what she might have done if only she had lived another five or 10 years. Well, it certainly is a real tragedy that she died so young and, and her brother just died a few years later, right? I mean, it was... Oh, only a few months yeah. later, actually. They both died in 1847. So another composer who died too soon, certainly, exactly. as well. So um, it's a real tragedy for music history. And do you think, as a scholar, if she had lived, you know, to a ripe old age, that... Um, you know, her, the way that she was researched and, and studied would have changed? Or do you think being a woman would, it, she would still would have suffered the sort of erasure that happened to her after her death? That's a, that's a really tricky question, because I think, you know, it's hard, of course, to know what would have happened if she had lived, but the, the signs indicated that she would have likely continued to publish. Um, she certainly would have continued her concert series, her Sunday musicals. And so I suspect she would have become much more of a public presence than she was. Um, that stated her reception in the decades immediately followed by that immediately followed her death were very much shaped by her family and by her son in particular. Um, and I think her son may have had somewhat different goals than portraying his mother as a public figure. 
So um, in that sense, I think some of the erasure of her work might have still happened anyway, but it would have been much more difficult if she had had a larger body of published work. So just in the quick overview you gave of her life, um, I could hear some of the sort of issues in the scholarship come up um, just in the way that you were describing it. Um, And I think those were issues that you really had to deal with when deciding how to write this research guide. And one of them is actually the the most fundamental is what do you even call her? I mean, Mm -hmm. her name, (laughs) it's crazy. Her name is very different throughout different people's writings. And there's there is sort of um, a political valence, so to speak, of, you know, it, it is an indication of some political thought by what she was called. Can you just sort of talk a little bit about that issue, that such fundamental issue? Yes, yes. And, and to be honest, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. It is a challenging, challenging issue. So um, she went through three names over the course of her life. And we might say that there's a fourth that's a valid version of her name as well. So um, those names are Fanny Mendelssohn, that was her name at birth, Fanny Mendelssohn Bartholdi, Fanny Hensel, and then Fanny Hensel Geboren Mendelssohn Bartholdi. So Fanny Hensel Ney, we would say in French, or her birth name is Mendelssohn Bartholdi. Um, so she became Fanny Mendelssohn Bartholdi when her parents converted in 1822. Um, they added the extra surname as a sign of their desire to integrate into mainstream non-Jewish German society. So that right there has a lot of political edge to it. Um, and then Fanny married Wilhelm Hensel in 1829, shortly before her 24th birthday. And so Fanny Hensel is the name that she used for most of her adult life. Um, now, she published under the name Fanny Hensel Gaborin Mendelssohn Bartholdi, although some scholars think that she did so at the instigation of her publisher to use the Mendelssohn name because of the fame of her family and especially her brother, that that would be a good thing in terms of marketing her music. Um, and, and of course, that, that name, Gaborin Mendelssohn Bartholdi, born Mendelssohn Bartholdi, is also a little bit inaccurate because that was not her birth name. And it was really only a name that she used for about seven years. Um, but to step back from that a little bit, the, the problem for me really lies in this ongoing association with her brother, in which using the name Mendelssohn serves not as a reference to her larger family background, but specifically to the idea that Fanny Hensel or Fanny Mendelssohn is related to Felix, and that's why she's worth studying. So this idea appears in the existing scholarship in so many ways. In the 1980 New Grove entry for her, it explicitly says that the main thing that's interesting about Fanny is what she tells us about Felix. Or um, you know, another example, in an earlier version of the Felix, Mendel- Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi Research Guide, information on Fanny was literally an appendix to this book on Felix. And that's not to say anything negative about the author, who is a huge supporter of new work on Fanny, but it reflects that the study of Fanny Hensel in many ways developed as a branch of the study of Felix Mendelssohn. Um, you know, another example, the main edition of her letters that exists in English consists of selected letters that she wrote to Felix. And so I wanted to dislodge all that a little bit. I wanted, through my choice of what to name her, 
to contemplate the possibility that we might just study Fanny Hensel on her own outside of the context of her brother. Now, an additional factor for me is that when she's referred to as Fanny Mendelssohn, which incidentally is the title of the Wikipedia article as of this morning, <laughs> uh, but when she's referred to as Fanny Mendelssohn without any reference to Hensel, that also really negates the place that her husband Wilhelm had in her life. And to me, that is a terrible omission because Wilhelm Hensel was really a positive, supportive presence. It was Wilhelm who influenced her to publish. It was Wilhelm participating in all those years of semi-public salons in their home. She went to Italy, where she had some of her best life experiences with Wilhelm. So those three things, that is, you know, wanting to use the name that she used as an adult and wanting to see her as a person worth studying in and of herself, not just because she's Felix Mendelssohn's sister, and wanting to bring Wilhelm Hensel more into the light. All of those really fed into my decision to use the name Fanny Hensel. Would you say that that decision is in keeping with the people who are working on her now? Or do you feel like you've actually, by taking that name, you're sort of on the leading edge of Hensel scholarship? Um, I, I think that scholars now, at least in the English-speaking world, tend to lean toward either Fanny Hensel or Fanny Hensel Gaborin, Mendelssohn Bartholdi. Um, there is still that desire to make a link with the Mendelssohns, um, which, and I can't crawl inside of other people's head to know why that is, but, you know, and there is something, I think, to the argument that it's important to place her in the context of her larger family, um, the larger Mendelssohn family, which certainly formed such was, was such an important formative force in her life. Um, so, you know, it's, I'd say a little bit on the leading edge, just call her Fanny Hensel or you know, perhaps just my own particular set of ideas. Um, but overall, it, it, le- it fits in with the directions in English language scholarship right now. Well, it's so interesting to me, that whole issue, because the other composer who um, was one of the early subjects of feminist research or feminist musicology was Clara Schumann. And we never, no one ever thinks to call her Clara Wieck because no one's ever heard of Wieck anymore, but we right. all, you know, and so somehow. Or if you have, you've heard really bad things because well, <laughs> Friedrich Wieck was a very troubling person. Well, exactly. And so. Um, but her married name, which of course is what she went by for you know many many years, she she lived to be very old. In, in contrast to to Fanny Hensel, is is the name that makes explicit the family relationship that was one reason that musicologists started looking at her in the first place. Which is tr- also true of Fanny Hensel that there's this sort of we need to talk about women. Where are the women? Oh look, here's one. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and and those two women were, in a sense, easy to locate because they were related to men who were already famous in the field. Uh, but but it's it's a very difficult thing when it comes to which surname to use in that case. You know, are we using a particular surname because it makes that link to somebody who's already famous explicit? Or are we using that surname because it's the surname that these women actually used when they were adults? And, and also, are we imposing certain modern values on them? You know, I've seen Fanny Hensel's name given as Fanny Mendelssohn hyphen Hensel, which is something she never would have done. 
women didn't hyphenate their names back then. <laughs> so um, you know, that's sort of imposing our own ideas. Well, if only she had been able to hyphenate her name, she would have. Well, I don't know. That, that's not actually what she did. Um, so yeah, it becomes a very difficult thing to untangle as we start to think about what to call these women. Um, you know, but I personally lean toward, well, what, what did she call herself, especially during her years of maturity? What did she call herself? Um, and that to me is a really critical question. Well, your answer or our discussion brings up another issue with Hensel scholarship that, um, uh, is one of those things that really affected how she was studied and it, and it is the archive. So people found her in part because she's all over the Mendel the Felix Mendelssohn archive, um, because they were very close and they have many letters and her music got sort of, uh, tied into Felix Mendelssohn as well. But Apparently, there are some issues with the archive um, related to Hensel scholarship that has really shadowed the scholarship for quite some time. Yeah, and and I want to clarify that that is was an issue um, mostly at an earlier time in the archive, but it does relate to the trajectory of Hensel scholarship, especially starting in the seventies and eighties. So, um, the the main Hensel archive, the main sources of or the main um, place where primary sources are kept is the State Library in Berlin. And in the 70s and 80s, there was what we might call some gatekeeping happening with those resources um, at the State Library in Berlin. Um, and it has been you know, documented pretty clearly in the scholarship that the main archivist there, Rudolf Elvers, was not particularly forthcoming about what the archive held in Fanny Hensel manuscripts or he would refuse to assist certain researchers, especially female researchers that researchers that he personally judged not to be serious scholars. And so, of course, this gatekeeping really angered those scholars, and that made its way into the discourse not just about Hensel, but about the activity of researching Hensel. Um, you know, and, and I do again want to assert insert here that. My experience in recent times has been that they're very helpful. They're very eager to get information about the sources into the public eye. But that was not the case 30 or 40 years ago. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, and that, of course, means her, you know, her gender and the gender of the people that first, at least at first started studying her become such an issue um, when you've got uh, this kind of gatekeeping going on, but also that the scholarship on her was in some way, I think, started precisely because she was a woman. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that she would have been uh, found otherwise. And of course, she was erased uh, as well for, to a certain extent because she was a woman. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the issue of gender, sort of the different ways that gender have not only affected her life, but but also sort of the scholarship about her? Absolutely. Um so the central thing here is the biographies that were written in the 1980s for the most part, um, many of which were based on research done in the 1970s. So 
Stepping back from that a little bit, Hensel's original biographer was her son, Sebastian, whose book, Die Familie Mendelssohn, or The Mendelssohn Family, was published in 1879. But his focus was on portraying the Mendelssohn family overall as respectable middle-class Germans of that time. So in Sebastian Hensel's book, his mother is portrayed as accepting that she would not have a public role and accepting that she would step back in favor of her brother. Um, This may have been how Sebastian Hensel wanted his mother to be remembered in the context of the late 19th century, which we also had a lot of rising anti-Semitism at that time in Germany. Um, And so he may have been very conscious of issues of um, how the family was perceived. So then we move forward to the 1970s and 1980s, when in musicology, the activity of the rediscovery of the history of women as composers became a, a significant part of musicology. In this context, Fanny Hensel is an obvious candidate for research because here we have a woman composer with a huge compositional output, high quality musical work. And also there are things in her background that fit well with this narrative of women being actively repressed. And I want to pause for a second and acknowledge that repressed is a loaded word in Hensel studies, but I'm going to use it anyway. Not that I'm arguing right now that Hensel was repressed by the standards of her own time, but that the conversation about repression that is a part of some strands of feminist history, there are things in Hensel's story that point toward that. Um, So to be specific, um, her father in his letters to Fanny sent some very clear messages about how her brother Felix could be a public artist and she could not. Um, In one letter, Abraham told Fanny that she should take pleasure in watching Felix's success rather than having her own success. Um, In another letter, which is quite infamous in pencil studies, Abraham told her that she needed to turn her attention to preparing for her real, and I'm using quote marks here, um, real career of being a housewife. And so I want to pause here and acknowledge that's infuriating, right? (laughs) I can't go back and remake myself into a German woman in the 1820s. So I don't know how infuriating it would have been at the time, but to us now, you take an incredibly talented, highly educated woman, like the young Fanny Mendelssohn Bartoldi, who is already producing musical work, who clearly has a calling as a musician and tell her that she needs to refocus her energy on housekeeping that she needs to be happy, that her brother is successful because she won't be allowed the opportunity to be successful. That is infuriating. And it is also important to acknowledge and discuss the harm that individuals can do. So we've already got uh, two things that fit very well here. Um, So that when we, as musicologists, we try to rethink the history of musical composition We have a female composer who wrote a lot and who was embedded at the center of German musical culture. So it's a bit of feeling like you've rediscovered a lost foremother, so to speak. Um, And then we have this issue of the gatekeeping that was happening at the Staatsbibliothek. So so the slant of the biographies at that time, which had to rely to a large extent on the already published sources, such as Sebastian Hensel's biography, but with a very different take on it, tended to lay the blame for Hensel's lack of a public career at the feet of individuals in her life, especially her father and her brother Felix. 
so then this shifts in the late 90s, early 2000s. There's new thinking in feminism. There's more interest in looking at social structures in a larger sense and how those structures affect women's ability to succeed in their chosen field of endeavor. And that's where things get a little more complicated because on the one hand, the ways in which Abraham and later Felix Mendelssohn did not support Fanny were pretty much par for the course for that time, given the combination of her gender and her social class. She was from a wealthy family, and so it would have been very unusual for her to have a career. And especially as converted Jews, the family would have been extraordinarily conscious of their public image. That doesn't mean that there weren't 19th century who didn't think that way at the time. And again, it's worth thinking about Wilhelm Hensel in this light. But in some ways, everyone in this equation is trapped in a social framework that did not support something like Fanny Hensel becoming a public figure as a composer and musician. And in many ways, too, Hensel was extraordinarily privileged because she was materially well off. She had servants. She had a solid educational background. So she had enough free time and the skill set to compose and to hold her concert series just without the ability to make any of this truly public. Um, So the debate between those two sides, between the earlier side that looked at Hensel's situation literally close to home with specific individuals in her family who told her not to pursue a career, and between those scholars who wanted to put those circumstances in a larger context, um, that debate became quite fierce in the early 2000s and resulted in a public published exchange largely between two Hensel scholars, Marcia Citron and Mary Wilson Kimber, that really demonstrated the polarities of the debate. So that had a major effect on Hensel studies. Um, but I would add that the other thing that has happened more recently to really change the conversation on Hensel is a new focus at looking on, at her music, not just her biography. So Remember, we've, we've had versions of her biography for more than a century now. And some of them read like they're about a completely different person than others, of course. But the field of documenting the course of her life is well established. The discussion of her music, however, is really only getting started now. And that's where there are lots of fresh opportunities. Well, and of course, that's also exactly backward from the way that we normally study things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In musicology, I'm not sure. Well, maybe, maybe Florence Price. I mean, you know, maybe there's a couple of other, again, women composers or maybe some black composers. I I guess I don't know too much enough about William Grant Still scholarship, for instance. No, but most of the time, you know, 99.9% of the time it's the music first and then someone gets around to talking about their life. And so, yes. (laughs) Yes. Right there, I think her gender made a huge difference that, uh, you know, that there. And of course, it sounds like also they may not have had a lot of um, access to her music because of gatekeeping in the in the 70s. Yes. And there was this biography that her son had written. So we had some idea about her life and and more difficulty accessing the music. So, um, so obviously, Hensel is a fascinating figure, whether you're talking about her as a person um, and as a composer, but also as sort of a, 
an avatar for what is going on in scholarship, right? <laughs> in a way that's, right. I mean, right. I, I, that's, I think, uh, certainly not unprecedented, but certainly quite unusual that um, you can follow these trends and, and um, I don't know, uh, musicological issues so easily through her research, not only just like, what do you do with her life? And there's these different ways of thinking about it, but also the whole idea of archival access as well. Um, so enter this project, um, this, right. this research and information guide. And I guess before we dig into, you know, how that reality then, ha- you know, how you dealt with all of that in the guide, maybe we could step back for just a moment and talk a little bit about, you know, how did you come to this project and what do you bring to the, to the project and, uh, you know, as in your own background? Sure. Um, so my background, uh, my research as a musicologist um, is to focus on mid-19th century music and cultural politics. Um, and my dissertation was focused on Berlin and on the Prussian court and various composers who worked in that context, various musical works that were created in that context. And a component of that research was to look at Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi's sacred music that he had written for the court in Berlin in the 1840s. Now, I had already done some work on Fanny Hensel back when I was a grad student. Um, looking, I did some work on Das Jahr, um, on Fanny Hensel's Das Jahr. And so I had something of a background on both of them. Um, so something I did before this guide was I worked on the Oxford Bibliography entry for Fanny Hensel. Um, now, this book-length research guide had been in the works for a while. Um, If you look at the introductory material to the research guide for Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, you'll see that Michael Cooper and Angela Mies Christian make reference to a Fanny Hensel guide that is underway. Um, Well, it wasn't quite as underway as as would have been ideal. Um, So uh, Angela eventually approached me and said, there is this project, it needs to be done. Um, She had done some of the background work for it, but hadn't gotten that far and she needed to, um, to give it to somebody else for various reasons. And so that is how this particular project wound up with me. Um, Now, as I started looking um, at other guides that were out there and at the research that has been done and the, the, the guides for new scholars that exist on Fanny Hensel, I was really startled that something like this didn't already exist. And that became a driving force for me in making sure it got done. Um, because, you know, Hensel is so central now. I mean, she is certainly one of the most central figures in the study of female composers. And I would say that her place in the more general s- scope of music history is also now becoming more and more firmly settled. And so I felt that we really needed to have something out there to assist um, the beginning researcher or even the more experienced researcher um, in navigating the body of work that has already been done on her. So given the issues that we've already spoken about her in scholarship, um, what every entry in this research guide has an annotation. So obviously you had to make some decisions about what to include and what to not include in annotations. And I'm wondering you know, how, what, I guess one way to talk about it is what are the ethics of an annotator in, in the, in a field where the scholarship became really quite contentious for a little while, mm-hmm. um, 
in, yes. particularly <laughs> in that exchange between Citroen and Kimber uh, and Wilson Kimber. Um, you know, what, what did you decide? How did you decide to approach that? Yeah. And, and I would say there are a surprising number of ethical decisions to be made all along the path of compiling a guide like this one. Um, you know, once you start getting into the content of the research that's out there, this becomes um, evident. So the goal of a guide like this is to be, again, I'm using scare quotes, comprehensive. Um, that's another loaded word, but comprehensive. And that even when comprehensiveness has defined borders of some kind, that's going to include both good and bad research. And so without specific reference to anybody we've talked about, I will say that there's a lot of not so great scholarship about Hensel out there. Um, and as we did just discuss, a lot of controversial scholarship as well. Um, so I'd say the problem in writing a guide like this is first to provide enough guidance so that someone who is new to the field is alerted to the fact that there are problems, that there are publications out there, for example, with straight up factual errors. Um, and second, the new scholars should know that there are these controversies. And in the long run, everybody needs to make up their own mind when it comes to a controversy. Um, and I would also add that there is older scholarship as well that at the time, you know, maybe passed the standards of good scholarship, but now we look at it and we see it as deeply flawed, deeply biased. And you know, I need to provide enough signposts for that as well that people know to look for it. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to provide pointers to distinguish these things, what's actually wrong, what's under debate, what's an issue, what's a matter of an older biased perspective. Um, in the big picture, that is really a matter of critical evaluation, which is basically information literacy, really. And a guide like this can serve as a means for teaching information literacy. Now, in the case of the controversies, I didn't want to impose my own view. This was another ethical dilemma. Now, I do have my own view on these matters, but in the case of a resource like this, you don't want to impose it on that. But in some ways, it's inevitable that my view is present. Um, you know, I have to acknowledge that at the end of the day, I'm not 100% objective because nobody is. It's a scholarly conversation. And even a book like this participates in that scholarly conversation. So at a minimum, I decided to acknowledge for the reader that there is a controversy and try to give them some tools and pointers to figure out what that's all about. Um, now, one thing, too, that happened as I was working on the annotations, because I had not read the full body of Hensel literature before I started this book. You know, I had a pretty solid background, but for this guide, I was reading sources in not just English and German, but also French and Italian. I, there was a lot of new material. So as I progressed through the project, my idea of what is the story of the field, so to speak, what has the shape and narrative of Hensel studies since the mid-19th century been, that changed as I was working on the project. And so I had to go back and redo some of the annotations because my own understanding of the field changed so much over the course of the project. Um, and one additional consideration was that I wound up being perhaps a little more inclusive in some areas than, and, than others might have been. 
Um, one of the last things I decided to include in this book was a section of what I call Belle Lettre, which is basically works that clearly contain elements of fiction. Um, I wanted to acknowledge that they, these are out there. <laughs> there. There are actually a surprising number of fictional works um, about Fanny Hensel or that feature Fanny Hensel in a significant way. Um, and really the line between the biographies that are supposed to be based on fact, but are maybe not so very well researched and fictional biography is a lot less clear than might be ideal. So this is something of an alert to that, that new researcher that, Oh, there are fictional works out there about Fanny Hensel. So I had better be on my guard if I'm looking for certain types of information. Um, so there's obviously the ethics of how to deal with annotation that you've addressed. And um, I think sort of the ethics of what does comprehensive mean as well that you talked a little bit about. But um, I'm interested also in what you said about once you had a general idea of the shape of of Hensel scholarship and you were actually reading in multiple languages, not just English, not just German, one of the things you had to do was impose an organization on all of that. What what were the criteria that you used for that? And and what do you think is the um, result of the organizing of the information for for the field and also for researchers? Right, right. So, I mean, obviously you do need to create some kind of organizational structure that otherwise it would just be a big list of stuff and that's, that's not helpful. But, um, you know, once you create a structure, the structure itself does have that element of subjectivity. You're, I am saying these are categories where I think there's enough content that it's basically a subfield. Um, and you, my reader, as a new researcher or even an experienced researcher, this is something, right, that I think of it as a subfield and maybe you should consider it as such too. Um, so I, I'm conscious that my organizational structure might push research in certain directions intentionally or not, and you know, might also affect the interpretation of the existing research. Um, you know, for example, I added a section of, on sources about the homes that Hensel lived in. So it turns out that there's a fair amount of research on these homes, uh, especially the, the Mendelssohn family compound in Berlin, where she spent more than half her life, but there's also research on her other homes. Um, and there is some scholarship on the combination of Hensel, music making, and space, that is the actual places in which music making took place, which in turn touches on that whole public-private problem. So you know, by creating this section, I'm suggesting that this is another approach for new research, is to look at private spaces and consider their significance for this particular composer and perhaps for musical culture in general. Um, you know, another, another section that I added is the section on Hensel as a correspondent, um, which you know, rather than including it as something biographical, I decided to make its own section. And I think that also suggests new directions for research. And my decision to add that section was influenced by communications I've had with other scholars about things like network studies. Um, you know, as I'm starting to think about Hensel as a member of a cultural artistic network, you know, the way that she corresponded is clearly a huge factor in her presence in that network. So this could also suggest new directions for research. So, so the decision to structure the guide the way I did was really an evolving process. Um, my original idea of how it would be structured is 
rather different from what I wound up with. And I was moving things around until quite late in the game. But once I started considering the overall history and trajectory of the field, these were the categories that made sense to me. Um, You've mentioned your ideal reader a number of times, and it seems like, so I I have not tried to do one of these, but um, how do you... How do you decide? Did did Rutledge, your publisher, tell you who the ideal reader was, or did you have to come up with that on your own? How how does that work? No, I I, I was coming up with it on my own, um, <laughs> and and I did also struggle with this question um, in part because of um, the the comprehensive, supposedly comprehensive nature of this project. So when I worked on the Oxford bibliography, it was much clearer that these were intended for as introductions that. I was supposed to focus on the English language sources, um, that they had a specific type of user in mind, Um, whereas something that's supposed to be comprehensive could be used by both a very experienced researcher who is perhaps just looking for some out-of-the-way things that they haven't encountered before, um, or somebody who is fairly new to the field. And so I was trying to balance both of those things, um, but, you know, with perhaps a focus on that, that new researcher, um, you know, an advanced undergraduate, a new master's student. And to be honest, sometimes I I thought of myself back when I was a master's degree student and writing my first Hensel seminar paper. What do I wish I had known back then? What would have been helpful for me getting into this field? What would have helped me navigate these really vibrant um, polarizing controversies where, okay, what, what's going on here? <laughs> um, so I was thinking about that kind of user, um, you know, who, you know, the, the challenge here is because that the, the Hensel researcher is necessarily going to need to be competent in both English and German, and that's not every new researcher. Um, but in general, I was thinking of somebody who perhaps has some of the skill set already and is interested in really getting into Hensel studies and just needs to find out, okay, on a fundamental basis, what has been going on in the field. Well, when I was looking through it, I have to say that I thought that this would be an ideal guide to use in some kind of bibliography class for new graduate students, because not only because of the way that you approached it, which which I, I didn't think in terms of the ideal reader when I was looking at it, but in hearing you talk about it, you know, that is the reader is someone in a early, you know, a first uh, semester bibliography class would be, I would think something, someone like your reader, but because, um, because of her figure or her place in the scholarship, you could immediately open up for a student, all sorts of issues just in what is, what went on with her scholarship, but your annotations, I think do make it clear that there's, there's pitfalls in her scholarship, and there's also uh, you you actually create a little bit of a network within the annotations of here this this uh, you know is related to that source is related to that source, um, which I'm not sure that research guides always do, but is certainly very helpful to uh, to anyone looking at Hensel studies to know exactly where to look if they want to sort of you know, get a quick dive into the um, different aspects of her scholarship and the different approaches people have made towards her biography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I also, that was another thing that I thought long and hard about was whether to create those cross references, but you know, scholarship is not always 
black and white, it falls into this category or that category. And so that was my way of dealing with the fact that any given source might deal with multiple topics in a useful way. Um, and you know, the other thing I'm, I'm trying to do through this is not just to help the new researcher navigate the pitfalls, which I think is really, really critically important, but also to encourage researchers you know, to give them, I'm going to say some hope, but um, give them some motivation because there's, there's so much work that could still be done on Hensel. This, this field is wide open right now. Um, and so, you know, if I were new to the field, I would find that very encouraging. Um, and so I'm hoping that my potential reader picks up on that and feels that, okay, this is a field where I can dive in and actually do some really new and exciting. Well, work. I think this has been a really fascinating discussion and I, I'm glad to be able to sort of dig into this idea of what makes a research guide. Cause I'm not sure everyone always thinks about that when they pick them up, but yet any scholar has mm-hmm. used guides like this. And it's important, I think, to to get a little bit of an idea of what the issues are that you're at, the editor went through um, in creating that. Mm-hmm. So you sort of mm-hmm. kind of know what you have in your hands. <laughs> so um, I appreciate you joining us to talk about this. Right. Right. So before we wrap up Absolutely. our discussion, um, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on now? Um, well, another figure that I have spent a lot of time um, working on is Giacomo Meyerbeer. Um, so also um, from Berlin, although he didn't live most of his life in Berlin, but I uh, have been looking at the works he did write for Berlin. So I just gave a paper at AMS, which dealt with um, his the one opera he wrote from Berlin, Einfeldager in Schlesien, and his relationship with his soprano for that opera, um, Jenny Lind. And so I'm going to be continuing my work on Meyerbeer in Berlin. So stay tuned for more papers and presentations on that topic. Well, that sounds fascinating. So I certainly will keep my eyes open for that. Um, So uh, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been joined today by Laura Stokes, author and editor of the Fanny Hensel, a research and information guide published by Rutledge. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.